This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. This is the, the uh, panel on, on Burma. I think we're, we're very lucky uh, in the conference to have uh, so many panels on, uh, on Burma. Um, this is a uh, period of great transition for the country. Uh, there have been a number of positive political changes um, in recent years, uh, including you know, the release of political prisoners, uh, uh, the promise of an election in 2015, uh, uh, but at the same time, there has been continuing conflict um, and continuing human rights violations uh, in the country, uh, particularly in areas uh, that um, uh, where there are national minorities, such as the Rohingya uh, and, uh, and in Kachin State uh, and elsewhere. Um, and it raises questions about really how real these changes uh, and the transformation is, but also about what the implications are, and this, I think, will be the primary focus of the panel, um, what the implications are for the implication uh, for, for not only just for Burma, but in political developments uh, and evolution of policy in Burma, but probably most importantly um, uh, about the treatment of minorities and of refugee groups in neighboring countries. Um, I think uh, uh, actually we'll, we'll, we'll start uh, the with Matthew and uh, Zotou Mung, uh, and hear their presentation on the, uh, on the chin. Thank you very much, Professor. It's an honor to be here among you uh, and to listen and learn from you all. Uh, I'm Matthew Wilch, a longtime human rights lawyer, and I was the lead writer of a December 2011 report seeking refuge, the Chin people in Mizoram State, India. Uh, which you can find on the website www.chinseekingrefuge.com. And a special thanks to Stephen Rubin, who's here, a photographer from, uh, uh, professor of photography from Penn State, who is, did the photos uh, for the report and also the, report, the photos you'll see today. And also, if you go out in the hallway, you'll see his photos along the hall. I recently became the Refugee Policy Advisor for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, but I do give this presentation with my other hat on as lead, lead writer of this report. And Zotum Mung, uh, born in Chin State, Burma, longtime Chin community activist living in the United States and a graduate of Harvard Kennedy School, will also give uh, the presentation in his capacity as one of the co-writers of the report. And the information we're sharing was gathered through uh, from two trips to Mizoram State in 2011 and 2012, and also up-to-date information gathered from numerous contacts with Chin and Mizoram leaders since then. Uh, first, Zoe has some background on the Chin people. The Chin people are one of several ethnic nationalities in the Union of Burma. An estimated 1.3 million Chins live throughout Burma, over a half million in Chin State, and large numbers in Sakain Division, Mukwe Division, Rakhine State, Yangon Division. 
Chin State is located in northwest Burma, borders Mizoram State, India, and Bangladesh. To understand the present situation, it is helpful to look at back the Chin's history. In 1895, Great Britain annexed the Chin territory ruled over by Chin chiefs and used the Chin Hill Regulation Act of 1896 to rule over the Chins. On February 12, 1947, the Chins, Kachinians, and the Burmese led by General Aung San, the father of the Aung San Suu Kyi, signed the Panglong Agreement. They thereby agreed to cooperate, quote, to more speedily gain independence, quote, from Great Britain. The agreement also calls for full autonomy for the frontier areas, that is, the territories of the Chins, Kachinians. Because of the military coup by General Nguyen on March 2, 1962, the Panglong Agreement was ignored, and Chin State and all Burma have been ruled by successive military regimes. So now we'll turn to the Chins in Mizoram State who are seeking refuge there. We took a roundtable inclusive approach with the trips that we took, trying to capture not only the humanitarian and protection challenges voiced by the Chins seeking refuge, but also the concerns of the local community and of the international community. Visiting five of the eight districts in Mizoram, uh, with the, uh, we met with Chin leaders and communities in town hall meetings, small focus group meetings, and individual interviews. We also met with state and local politicians, church leaders, NGOs, and international community stakeholders, including UNHCR and the U.S. government. And this boy that we see here is a Chin uh, lad, one of the 100, estimated 100,000 Chins who are in Mizoram State, India. They've been fleeing since uh, 1962, since the coup, and especially uh, since 1988. Um, and they are, are fleeing ethnic, political, and religious persecution. And since, uh, for many years, in India had trade, had uh, uh, restrictions on travel to the region, both for foreigners and also for Indians who are not from the region. So it's apt that this boy should just be peeking out and be not be known by people because that's been the case. Also, UNHCR uh, has not had access to the area as well. So they've been out of sight and out of mind for these many years. The Chins seeking refuge uh, are treated uh, as illegal aliens uh, living very much on the margins of the community. There's no UNHCR, as, as we mentioned. They're uh, lacking in livelihood, uh, nutrition, uh, potable water, health care, and education. The children especially are at risk because of their vul vulnerable stage of development in their lives, and also because those chins who are born in Mizoram State are stateless. Chins live really with a life on hold, um, and as uh, Dr. Chris said, they're in a protracted refugee situation. And further uh, explanation of that from UNHCR is when basic rights and essential economic, social, psychological needs are unmet after years in exile. The future of Chin families is also uncertain, as, they, as again, as the opening plenary pointed to, the difficulty of finding durable solutions. No resettlement available to Chins in Mizoram. Local integration is uh, very problematic, as you'll see as we go on with this. And repatriation, there's very much a wait-and-see attitude by the 
by the chins in Mizoram to see what's going to happen, as you, as you described, Professor. The crisis of the Chin seeking refuges is very much impacted by the international events. This is a bridge between uh, Champai, India, and Zokatar, Burma. 60% of the border of Mizoram is on the uh, Burma-Bangladesh border with India. Uh, And India has key economic trade security relationship with Burma, uh, which very much affects their uh, policies about the Chin. Chins fled from the Burmese military regime, ethnic and religious persecution. Here, this is from a church service that we attended while we were there. Ninety percent of uh, people in Chin State were Christians, uh, and the American Baptist Church actually were were, were those who uh, were in were in Chin State in the late 1800s. Um, the Chin seeking refuge also are, are are fleeing from political persecution. And there was a large group, especially starting in 1988, and this is a barracks that India actually provided some protection at that time uh, for for, uh, Chin, both uh, protection and also some humanitarian assistance. Just to understand what the baseline is and the wait-and-see attitude of the uh, Chin people, 92% of Chins from across Chin, Chin State were subjected to crimes against humanity. This is from a report that was done by Physicians for Human Rights just about the time that we released our report. And the Chins who are in Mizoram have a great fear of arrest, detention, and deportation to go back to Burma, that continuing wait-and-see attitude. And part of the fear is that they're illegal aliens and subject to those, those risks Another part of it is that there have been anti-Chin campaigns in, in 1994, 2003, on a large scale, where uh, thousands of, literally thousands of people from Chin State were deported back. There are still very disturbing, smaller-scale uh, anti-Chin activities going on, which I think Rachel is going to talk about in a later presentation. The Chins seeking refuge in Mizoram do not live in refugee camps. They're urban refugees. Uh, and here's uh, one of the cities they live in in, in Saiha, southeast uh, Chin State. I mean, Burma, I mean, Mizoram. southeast Mizoram State, sorry. Uh, the Chins, as was part of the plenary as well, are really joining together to help themselves in any way they can. They come together in churches and Christian fellowships, they create informal NGOs. But there's a big, big obstacles because of their illegal status to try to organize. Uh, because then they draw attention to their, themselves. So that's, that's a major challenge for them as a community. People in Chin State, Burma, and Mizoram State uh, are, have very much an intertwined uh, relationship. And we've talked mostly so far about the Chin people, but now we're going to turn and talk also about Mizoram itself. Mizoram has an agricultural economy. About 70% uh, are involved in agriculture, very similar to Chin State in Burma. And so when the Chins come, they are often engaged in agriculture. And you can see this hillside where they still practice slash-and-burn farming. But uh, the Mizoram state is trying to institute some agricultural reforms. 22% of people in Mizoram live below the Indian poverty line. Uh, So there's a lot lot of poverty. This is a house out, out in the countryside. Uh, By the way, um, in Chin State, uh, 73% under the poverty line there. 
Missouri has water shortages, especially in the dry season, and, and we witnessed people waiting for hours just to try to get enough water for the day. Missouri has health care challenges, too. These are pillars of an unbuilt hospital, uh, a dream that never came to fruition because of lack of, um, lack of resources. Missouri has strong NGOs. This is, uh, these are the colors of the Young Miso Association. Um, some 300,000 people in, uh, are part of this organization. It's the largest in, in Missouri. Most of the political leaders are also members. They do humanitarian work. Um, they also uh, pay attention to social mores in the community and ethnicity as well. And uh, I think probably, as Rachel will also describe, there's been, uh, they've also been implicated in some of the anti-Chin activities. And we did uh, meet also with them numerous times. The Christian church is very influential in Mizoram, over 95% Christian, and the religious um, identity is very much tied up with their cultural identity. And you'll be interested that the uh, Welsh Presbyterian and English Baptists were among those who, who brought the uh, Miso people to Christianity. There's some 72 uh, denominations, but as I say, some of the major ones are Presbyterian, Baptists. There's also quite a number of Catholics and Evangelicals. The church uh, very much joins with the government on the on the providing, especially health care and education. And about half of those sectors are are private church, and half of them are, are government government services. We really came to see how uh, the government operated on local, state, and national levels that very much impacted locals, but also the Chin people. So in a market like this, for example, permits that were distributed uh, made a big difference about whether people could uh, have a life. Also on the district and state level, some of the food programs were instituted in different ways in different places that greatly impacted the Chin there's also international interests that always come into play here, and here's the Caledon River. There was a $200 million or so project uh, trying to create a transportation trade route from northeast India through Burma uh, to, to, as a gateway to Asia and back to India. Many Chins also live in the capital city. This is Aizawl, built, I think, on a dozen, uh, dozen hills. It's a beautiful place. The Chin especially live on the outskirts of this major city of 260,000. They also live throughout Mizoram State, and you can see that sort of between heaven and earth uh, kind of housing that sometimes people live in there. Chins often live on the margin of Mizoram communities, and this is no more painfully clear than uh, when... There have been troubles in certain areas for people to bury their dead among the Chin. Chins work in markets. Here's a couple of women who are selling vegetables and uh, spices. And then here's uh, Chin working in uh, quarries. Uh, oftentimes young, young boys are working there too. Chins also do agricultural work, as mentioned earlier, and sometimes they raise some scarce capital by having uh, raising up pigs. Chins, nonetheless, with all this economic activity, still we witnessed a lot of uh, chronic economic insecurity, and these are the hands of a fellow who's uh, 19 years 
uh, in Mizoram, father of seven. And the Monday after we we met with him, he was about to be evicted once again from from their home. There, the uh, poverty often contributes both for low-income Mizos and also for, for the Chin people seeking refuge to serious health problems, especially what related to water, lack of nutrition, and mosquito-borne diseases. Mizoram is very rightfully proud of their 92% literacy rate, which is second in India. Unfortunately for the Chin people, many of the children are working uh, to help support the family and are unable to go to school. The forced migration of the Chin has also greatly impacted the Mizoram people, and here's a Mizoram uh, mother and child uh, in one of the church hospitals we visited. Uh, Chins also seek refuge in New Delhi, and I know uh, panel seven, I think there's more about uh, New Delhi that's coming up, so we'll save that for that, but we'll give you a second image, which is a night market from New Delhi, where refugees have, have gone to try to supplement their diet. The approach we're taking is a roundtable approach, and Zoe wants to uh, invite you to join in on that approach to help the Chin people in Mizoram and also uh, the people of Mizoram State. Using the roundtable approach, we explore ways that the NGOs, churches, UNHCR, the international community, concerned countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan, Australia, Canada, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, New Zealand, and the EU can partner with the governments of Mizoram State and India to better understand and address the challenges facing the Chins and Mizoram State. Working in good faith, we can move towards solutions together, creating protection for Chins and addressing humanitarian challenges facing both the Chins and the Mizoram people. On pages 1 to 1 to 130 of the full report at www.chinseekingrefuge.com, there are full recommendations. We invite you to review the full recommendations and to help create solutions. Thank you. Thank you to the presenters so far. You've set a very high standard, so I'll try to follow your lead. Um, on July 21 last year, during an extended fieldwork trip on the Thai-Burma border, I found myself welcomed into the tiny, tidy home of a Karen refugee. The former Nupo camp leader and I sat cross-legged on the floor in his house while he told me that he and his fellow refugees lacked the information they needed to make informed decisions about their lives. As we're here to learn about refugee voices, I thought I'd begin with his. If you decide your fate on rumours, it is all wrong. So that is the point I want you to understand. There will be a time when you have to decide whether to go back to Burma, and when you are going to decide, you must know the information. Without accurate information, it is very difficult to decide. Today, I'd like to discuss the criticality of communication for the 140,000 refugees living in camps on the Thai-Burma border. In order to cope with life outside the nation-state, refugees require more than physical necessities such as food, water and shelter. They desperately need information. 
While information is required on a daily basis, just as it is in any community, recent political developments have inflamed and exacerbated this need. Discussions are taking place between the Thai and Burmese governments concerning plans for voluntary repatriation, concurrent with the termination of resettlement programs and circulation of rumours that the camps may soon close. Consequently, refugees need reliable information that can inform their decisions about what is the best option for the safety of, of their, their futures and the futures of their families. Imagine, if you will, the many questions you would need answered if faced, if faced with deciding whether to return to the homeland where you were once persecuted and, as was the case for many, tortured, raped, beaten, injured in a landmine explosion or forced to work as a porter in the army. During my presentation, I'd like to give voice to the refugees who so generously shared with me their stories and perspectives. And in doing so, hopefully I'll be able to illuminate the following. Firstly, communication plays a crucial role in assisting refugees psychosocially and to make informed decisions. And secondly, two-way communication between aid providers and refugees is key to designing effective strategies for the provision of reliable information that can empower refugees and help them better cope with life outside the nation-state. But first, a little background and some literature review and methodology, which as a PhD student I'm obliged to cover very quickly, I promise. So the ethnographic uh, PhD research project on which this presentation is based takes a phenomenological approach to exploring the concept of, as, of communication as aid through the lens of the Thai-Burma border. So historically, aid efforts have focused on the supply of goods, such as food, shelter and water, while communication and information have been seen as secondary concerns. Yet in the last decade, a range of humanitarian organisations, including Internews, uh, BBC Media Action and the Red Cross, have re-envisioned communication as both a fundamental need of crisis-affected communities that can enable informed decision-making and a service that can improve the quality and effectiveness of aid efforts overall. Despite the humanitarian sector demonstrating growing awareness of the pivotal role of communication, there remains a paucity of empirical research concerning communication as aid. Theoretically, this study finds its roots in crisis communication designed as, uh, defined as the exchange of information that takes place between an organisation and its publics in order to address a crisis situation. Although crisis communication... Crisis communication literature acknowledges that the priority concern of crisis response should be providing information to affected publics. Little is known about how best to do so. So the research project employed two uh, qualitative methods. In-depth semi-structured interviews were conducted with, 50, with 53 refugees from Mela, Umpiam and Nupo refu refugee camps, which for those who aren't familiar are sort of about halfway up um, the map there, I suppose, uh, nearest to Mesot City. Um, 
And also interviews were conducted with 30 practitioners from key humanitarian organisations and media organisations. Uh, and participant observation was conducted at Mela, Umpium and Nupo to complement um, the semi-structured interviews. So I'm still in the process of analysing the data, uh, but preliminary themes have begun to emerge. These themes reflect noted correlations um, in numerous transcripts, but due to time constraints today, I've selected in some places to use a single quote to evidence these recurrent themes. Refugees across age groups, ethnicities and genders linked a lack of information access to the, to the inability to make informed decisions about their lives and to feelings of fear, confusion, anxiety and depression. Among them was a 31-year-old female from Mela who expressed concern about the lack of readily available information to confirm or deny rumours emerging in the camps. She said, I feel so confused sometimes. Sometimes people... Uh, some of people who live in refugee camp said Burmese soldiers come to the refugee camp and then they are fighting, and so I am scared. But whether it's true or not, I don't know. A 61-year-old man, also a resident of Mela, told me, when we didn't get enough information, we cannot make decisions for our future. It makes us feel very sad. Sometimes we get depressed. So it's clear that the negative consequences associated with the ineffective or insubstantial communication of information to refugees can be triggered both by everyday concerns about life inside the camps and long-term concerns about what might happen in the future. Interestingly, uh, aid workers also acknowledged the criticality of communication, particularly in light of new information needs emerging due to discussions about voluntary repatriation. In fact, growing realisation of the criticality of communication has prompted UNHCR and CCSDPT, the coordinating committee for the 21 NGOs working in the camps, to draft plans for the implementation of dedicated information sharing centres in an effort to better meet information needs. A pilot project began in Tamhin Camp last month. Hmm. So uh, while, while aid workers were unanimous in acknowledging the criticality of information, many said information provision was a challenge that aid agencies were unsure how to tackle effectively. For example, one aid worker told me, we find information flow difficult and quite challenging, so we try to use as many approaches as we think we need in order to get the information out. But still, you could easily walk into Mela in some remote corner and ask someone, is there vocational training offered in this camp? And they'd say no. It's amazing how hard it is to get the information out there, let alone whether it's accurate or not. That's a completely different story. So let's take a look at the existing information mechanisms in the camps and see what analysis unravels concerning their limitations. So uh, ooh, that does not have the correct information on my slide. There we go. <laughs> oh, no, that's not it either. Sorry, there was a formatting issue with my slides because there's an old version of PowerPoint on here. So you might just have to bear with my notes for the minute until the next slide. 
So in each camp, camp committees made up of elected representatives from the camp populations administer three official sources of information. Section meetings, notice boards and loudspeakers. These mechanisms provide general updates about the situation in the camps, such as information about resettlement programs, the distribution of food rations, and orders for refugees not to go outside the camp boundaries. The distributed information largely originates from updates provided to the camp committees by NGOs, CBOs, Thai government departments and provincial officials when and if they decide they have information to share. The camp committees then decide what information to filter down to refugees using the camp-controlled mechanisms. Generally, section section meetings are held anywhere between once a week and once a month, while loudspeaker announcements occur daily and notice board information is updated as new information becomes available. However, the information provided via these mechanisms was described by one aid worker as not consistent, it's sporadic, it's not effective, it depends what camp, what section. So some camps have excellent loudspeakers, but in some sections it doesn't work. Overwhelmingly, refugees identified the camp section meetings as their main source of information, but it became evident that actually the most prevalent source of information is word of mouth. To make the section meetings manageable logistically, only one refugee from each household is invited to attend, and then attendees are expected to repeat that information to um, other members of their household who weren't present. So this process means that most refugees receive information second or third hand from family members or friends, or sometimes not at all. In addition to these official sources, refugees have very limited access to radio, television, newspapers, magazines and the internet. The costs associated with media consumption, such as buying a radio or watching television at a tea shop, are prohibitive. Technological and geographical restrictions mean mobile and internet services are only available in a few camps. Most refugees reported not knowing how to use the internet and many are unable to read. Okay, hopefully this next slide works for me. Yes, okay. So overall, the key factors inhibiting the existing communication environment in the camps are a lack of coordination. Communication isn't coordinated. Existing efforts are piecemeal. Communication isn't considered a sector, like health, education, water, shelter, and so on, and therefore isn't assigned a lead organisation. While existing sectors have minimum standards that are internationally recognised, information sharing is characterised by a lack of benchmarks and professional guidelines. For example, what types of information are to be provided, when, how, about what. So uh, ultimately this has resulted in a situation where refugees have inadequate access to information, especially specific information about their individual circumstances that they can access directly from a reliable source that they feel they can trust. An absence of trustworthy information that addresses refugees' specific information needs is conducive to an environment where refugees seek to answer their own questions by sharing amongst themselves fragments of information, news, conversations, gossip and rumours that are often distorted in the process. 
In a statement typical of refugee comments about information access, a male resident of Umpium told me, mainly I got the news from person to person. It's not reliable. And demonstrating that rumours do penetrate refugee perceptions and opinion, particularly in the absence of reliable information, a resident of Mela told me, I don't know when and where they will send us back to Burma, but I heard maybe they will send us by force. So that's just a couple of photos uh, of some of the information mechanisms in the camps. Um, Loudspeaker and a couple of notice boards as some of the main official sources. So essentially all of this amounts to one key issue. The existing information mechanisms in the camps rely on one-way transmission of information, a view of communication that is now considered outdated as it perceives audience members as passive recipients at the end of the transmission process. In contrast, contemporary perspectives account for the fact that different audiences receiving the same message may interpret it differently, attribute different meanings to it, and react to it in different ways. This means, in order for communication to be effective, two-directional flow of information and a focus on trust, openness and relationship building are necessary. So, by listening as well as talking, it's possible for aid agencies to help facilitate conversations, better understand and respond to debates, gossip and rumours, empower and give voice to the marginalised, identify and address information needs as they change over time, take advantage of the opportunity to clarify misunderstandings, address confusion and build trust, and thereby create a more effective communication environment. The interviews also confirm that two-way communication helps refugees, uh, sorry, helps identify the myriad considerations and constraints determining how to communicate. In other words, what mediums and styles of communication will be feasible and most effective given local information ecologies? My conversations with refugees highlighted, for example, the sources refugees trust most, the sources that are most accessible to them, and the native media habits that influence their interest or willingness to engage with various mediums. Interviews with aid workers shed light on other factors, such as limitations associated with geographical location, resource constraints, local policy and regulations. These factors must also be considered in determining the practicality of various communication strategies. So how can these concepts be put into practice? At this point, I've figured out a a lot about what not to do. (laughs) Considering the myriad constraints and complexities of the camp environment, including numerous language groups, illiteracy, trust issues, and for some, disinterest in information, the part about what to do is proving a little more difficult. Uh, I intend to refine my recommendations during the course of the project, but for now I'd suggest the work of international non-profit media development organisation Internews provides some clues about where to start. Internews has pioneered efforts to use two-way communication in communication as aid media projects, which have been praised by USAID, among other organisations, for their vital role in helping communities survive crises. 
Internews projects usually focus on teaming with local radio stations and journalists to produce daily radio programs with content based on data gathered by research teams. These research teams interview members of the local community periodically in order to understand information needs as they change over time. Typically, the programs also offer opportunities for crisis-affected communities to be part of a dialogue by inviting them to take part in on-air call-ins, stories, debates and discussions. Considering radio is relatively trusted, accessible and popular in the camps in Thailand and that radio presents no significant geographical or technological limitations, a program of this kind could be among the two-way mechanisms workable on the Thai-Burma border. So to wrap it up and recap my my main points... Communication can play an important psychosocial role and help refugees make informed decisions about their lives. However, the effectiveness of communication as aid is contingent on two-way communication between aid agencies and refugees, which can illuminate what refugees want to know and how this information can be communicated to them most effectively. So finally, here's one last quote, this time from an aid worker. I thought it was a fitting place to end as her words on the criticality of information represent the growing realisation behind recent efforts to implement information sharing centres in the camps. Efforts which, if realised effectively, will help refugees on the Thai-Burma border cope with the looming prospect of voluntary repatriation. I think having access to information would be very important for the refugees, not only to make informed decisions, but also for them to feel that they are considered worthy human beings that deserve to know about the world and issues that affect them. In my opinion, listening to refugee voices and involving them in their own affairs would be one of the most empowering activities that organisations could undertake. Thank you. I, I really want to thank uh, the panel uh, and, and the participants. I, I, I speak, I think, for everyone. It's a real privilege to have you all here, uh, and it's and it's wonderful for us to to hear hear uh, views uh, from the field and to and to uh, get views that also challenge the dominant views uh, and perceptions that. Uh, we are often given uh, in in the media. Uh, uh, So thank you very much. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.